بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم سبحانك لا فهم لنا إلا ما فهمتنا إنك أنت الجواد الكريم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله إن شاء الله tonight I may have to power through my voice a little bit since it's a bit hoarse and uh, yeah, I've been losing it over the past couple of days. My voice, I mean, not my mind. And inshallah, we'll, we'll power through and make it. So last week, uh, we began this program. And as we always begin these programs, we did an introduction to the topic by looking at the importance and significance of knowing the 99 names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just as a bit of a review uh, one of the things that we reiterated is that anything that you study any subject will only be as virtuous as the object of your study so if what you are, if the object of your study is noble, then your learning of that is noble. If the object of your study is ignoble, then what your your learning is ignoble. And this goes back to a saying of the scholars. They say, "Sharaful ilmi bi sharaful ma'lum." The nobility of a subject or a science relates to the nobility of what it's actually studying. And since we are learning the meanings of Allah's most beautiful names, the Asma'ullah al-Husna, that means that this is the noblest pursuit. And this is perhaps one reason why Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, titled his work on the 99 names, Al-Maqsad al-Asna, which means literally the loftiest pursuit, the highest pursuit, is knowledge of the divine knowledge of the absolute and we mentioned that the basis for this is in the words of Allah Ta'ala in Surah Al-A'raf To Allah belong the most beautiful names so invoke him with those names and we mentioned the famous hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wasallam who says and there's different variations of this hadith there's different variations. Uh, the one you see here says, whoever memorizes them or secures them will enter paradise. But the other narration says, which means to enumerate. So, what does it mean exactly to enumerate the 99 names of Allah? This ihsa, we explained, entails three things. Number one is literally memorizing them. Number two, understanding what they mean. And number three, as it says here, live according to the character of God's names. And this is what is called at-takhalluq bi-akhlaqillah. Inculcating in yourself the qualities of character uh, described by these names. So we can see here that the easiest one is to memorize. After that comes understanding, which is a little bit harder. And then the last one is the absolute hardest, which is to actually live and have one's character reflect the meanings of those most beautiful names of Allah Ta'ala. That is the lifetime's work. One can't say, well, I've done that and uh, I'm finished now. I will move on. No, that's, that's the rest of our life. So, uh, we mentioned last week as well that one of the benefits of learning the 99 names is that we learn different aspects of our own servitude to Allah. Namely, how do I be, become a better Abdullah or Amatullah? How do I become a better Abdul Rahman or Amatul Rahman? 
or Abdul Ghaffar or Amatul Ghaffar, the servant of the one who has those qualities described in these names. And one of the things we mentioned uh, towards the end is something that we're going to go over in every single class. And that is, at the end of each class, we're going to look at three levels of, you could say, uh, connection to the name or uh, cultivating something within ourselves based on the meaning of the name. And these three are mentioned by many scholars. They say the first one is التعلق, which is uh, connecting devotionally to that name. So this often takes the form of making dua with that name or uh, seeking what should be sought uh, with respect to that name. That is the ta'alluq. The second one is the takhalluq, which we just said, taking the meaning of the name and inculcating that meaning in one's own character. So that's a little higher. And then it comes the third one, which is the most difficult, and that is tahakkuq. And tahakkuq is attaining a deep realization of the name, witnessing its manifestations and effects in creation. Now that's kind of unclear right now, because we haven't gotten to that part yet. But probably next week that will be a lot clearer as we look at examples for these. So that's the review. And today, inshallah, we will just look at the name Allah, Allah, also called Al-Ismul A'zam, or the Supreme Name. And there's a discussion about what exactly is Allah's Supreme Name. Uh, many of the ulama and the arifun say that it is the Divine Name Allah. But that's a very detailed discussion I'm actually going to put off to the very end where we present the different viewpoints and look at what that even means. So I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but we are covering the divine name Allah. Now, out of all of the divine names, this name is the most difficult name to speak about. And that is because the name is the name of the divine and the name points to the that the divine essence it is the personal name of the creator of the heavens and the earth and every other name is an aspect of the divine name allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this is the comprehensive name al-ismul jami' It is the comprehensive name, the most personal name of Allah Ta'ala, whereas the other names are highlighting qualities of Allah. So, Allah, then you have Ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahman is also a divine name, but it is pointing to the quality of Rahmah. Al-Ghaffar is a divine name, but that name is pointing to the quality of forgiving. So all of the other 99, the 98 names are pointing to the attributes of Allah Ta'ala. But this name does not point to an attribute as such. It points to al aliyya the exalted essence of the divine himself, subhanahu wa ta'ala, wa taqaddasat asma'uhu. So this is the most definite of those that are known, Aruful Ma'arif, as they say. <coughs> so, to explain this name, we will look at the words of Imam Al-Ghazali first, and then we'll explore uh, a somewhat contentious issue that I would otherwise avoid, but because it helps us understand what has been said about the meaning of the name, we'll go into it. So Imam al-Ghazali gives a very beautiful description of the name Allah by saying that Allah is the name for the true existent. The true existent. 
the one who unites the attributes of divinity, ilahiya, and who is the subject of the attributes of lordship, rububiya. <clears throat> and number three, he is unique in true existence. Why? For no existent thing other than him may claim to exist of itself, but rather others gain existence from him. They are perishing insofar as they exist of themselves and exist insofar as they face him. So let's stop here and unpack that a little bit. That's really dense. What exactly is Imam al-Ghazali saying? What he's saying is that this is the name for uh, al-wujud al-haq, the true existent, the one who has the attributes of div divinity, the attributes of lordship, meaning control and command, and who is unique in true existence. Why? Because no existent thing other than him can be said to exist of itself. You and I do not exist in and of ourselves. Our existence is given to us. We didn't exist, and then Allah created us. So our existence is not a necessary thing. It is, we're possible existence. Only Allah Ta'ala is the necessary existence. He is the only one who exists bidatihi, in and of himself. Others gain existence from him. We only exist because Allah created us. That's it. Allah Ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Insan, هَلْ أَتَى عَلَى الْإِنسَانِ حِينٌ مِنَ الدَّهْرِ لَمْ يَكُنْ شَيْئًا مَذْكُورًا Has there come upon man a time when he was nothing to be mentioned at all? Indeed. Because prior to our existence, what were we? Think about that. What, you know, where were you? You were nothing. And it's a paradox. You were nothing. Well, what's the you then? What's the identity of you there? It's Adam, mahd, Just unmitigated non-existence. And then Allah created each and every one of us. Our existence is derived. It is given to us. It's bestowed. The only one who exists in and of himself, whose existence is necessary, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, they are perishing insofar as they exist of themselves. Meaning, uh, this is a reference to the words of Allah Ta'ala, كُلُّ مَنْ عَلَيْهَا fan. Everything in the cosmos is fani, meaning it is ephemeral and fading and perishing by its very nature because it has a beginning and it has an end and there's constant change that we're undergoing. That means constant recreation of states within us. So our nature is, our essential reality is non-existence. It's Allah who gives us existence. That's what it means. So we exist because Allah gave us existence, which means we're not necessary. Therefore, we're not God. Because only God is necessary. He says that this name, Allah, is the greatest of the 99 names. Why? For it points to the essence that gathers all of the divine attributes, unlike the other names. So as we said earlier, all the other names are names reflecting certain qualities, certain attributes, but this is the name that indicates the divine essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, it is the most specific of the divine names, hence it cannot be applied to others besides him, neither literally nor figuratively. You know, figuratively you can say, Fulan is uh, Rahim, right? You can say figuratively that so-and-so is uh, a Malik, you know, he's a king. You can say so-and-so is... Uh, you can, you can mention certain names without the alif and lam, you know, that would apply to people who have certain qualities. But you can never use the name Allah for other than Allah, not even majazan, not even figuratively. 
So it's exclusive to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, to really explain what has been said about the meaning of this divine name, we have to delve into this issue that I would otherwise not bring up because, well, it's kind of involved and involves details of Arabic. But the discussion actually shed some light onto what has been said about the meaning of the divine name Allah. So there's a famous debate among scholars uh, from the earliest times, and that is whether the name Allah is mushtaq or murtajal, uh, whether it is derived or whether it is non-derived. Well, first we got to explain what those two things mean. So in Arabic, you have words that are mushtaq, meaning they're derived. It's traced to a root, right? Let's take the name Muhammad, right? What are the three-letter roots of that name? Ha, Mim, Dal. So you, if you say Hamada, uh, you now add a Shadda, you enunci- double enunciate the Mim as a verb. Hamada, Yuhamidu. And the one who does that, the ism fa'il is Muhammad. But if you say uh, Muhammad, it means the one who receives that constant and frequent praise. The point I'm making is that name Muhammad comes from the three letters Ha, Mim, Dal. Right? Most, uh, most words tend to be mushtaq. Not all, but most, right? So let's say, Maqsad, uh, is your name derived or is it not derived? It's derived. Derived from what? From Qaf, Sad, Dal, Qasada. Qasada, Maqsad. So it's derived. So you can, you can trace your name to those three root letters. Right? And it has the huruf al-za'ida. So that's the derived name. But then you have other nouns that are, they call them either jamid or murtajal. They're not derived. Meaning, you can't trace it to a prior noun. I can take maqsad and trace it to qasd. I can take muhammad and trace that to hamd. But I can't take the word shems and trace it to some other word, right? I can't take the word qamar and trace it to another word with, the, with three letters. It's just qamar, shems is shems, qamar is qamar, hajar, shajar, and so on. Uh, that's how it is. So you have some nouns like that too. But I mean names, personal names. So you have these kinds of nouns. So now the question here, or the debate, is, is the divine name Allah derived from a three-letter root? Or is it not derived? Meaning it stands alone, not being traced to a prior three-letter root. This is a debated question. There are uh, great scholars on both sides of the debate. Uh, who champion their view. And I'm not here to say who's right and who's wrong, although I have my own personal take from certain authorities. But when we look at the view of those who say it is derived, that's where we learn a bit about what is said to be the root letters and therefore the meaning. So that's how we arrive at some of what has been said about the meaning of the name Allah. If you say it's not derived, then that's a different conversation. So let's look at that first, and then we'll go to the derived argument. So if you say it's not derived, (coughs) you're saying that the name Allah does not come from a prior root. Right? And that would mean that the elif and lam in the divine name is intrinsic to it. Right, because you're thinking El Ilah said so many times that 
to make it easy on the tongue, it sounds like Allah. That's a view. This view says no. They say the elephant lamb is a part of the word itself, inseparable. And one of the arguments they use, which is frankly a very strong argument, is that when you make dua, what do you say? You say, Ya Allah. Ya Allah. What if you call out his divine name, Ar-Rahman? What do you say? Ya what? Ya Rahman. Notice that you're not saying Ya Ar-Rahman. What happened to the Edifin Lam? Because in Arabic, in the Nida, if you are uh, calling one whose name has an Edifin Lam in the beginning, when you say Ya before it, you drop the Edifin Lam. Because it's not essential to it. You drop it. So you will call upon Ar-Rahman by saying Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, Ya Malik. Not Ya Al-Malik. You, you drop the Edifin Lam. But when you call upon Allah saying Ya Allah, the Edifin Lam remains. Which tells you that the Edifin Lam in the divine name Allah, these two letters are intrinsic to it. That is the view of those who say it's not mushtaq, it's not derived. And because it's not derived from another noun, they say that it simply points to the that, the divine essence, without considering a specific attribute of the divine. Just the name of God Almighty. That's it. And this is because, they say, the name Allah is not derived from an, an adjective, unlike the other names. Al-Alim comes from what? Ilm, the one who possesses absolute knowledge. When you say Al-Haq, the one who possesses truth, the real. Al-Khaliq from Khalq, creation. Raziq from Rizq, right? Those are pointing to attributes. The name Allah is not pointing to a specific attribute. It is the name of the divine itself, himself, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they say that the Alif and Lam in the divine name Allah is from the very word itself, just like the Zay of Zayd is a part of the name Zayd. You wouldn't say the Zayd is extra and you could drop it. You can't drop it. If his name is Zayd, you can't drop the Zayd because it's intrinsic to the name. Likewise, they say the Alif and Lam is intrinsic to the divine name. Allah. And this is the position of a large number of ulama. This was also the position of Imam al-Ghazali and several others. And he has a very famous statement when he talks about this at the end of his discussion. He says, everything that has been said by others about it being derived from a root, he says, all of it is ta'assuf wa ta'akkum. Basically, he's saying it's all artificial and arbitrary. But we're not going into the ins and outs. We're just looking at what has been said. So we've gone through all of this just to get to where I want to get in the next slide. And that is the view of those who say it is derived. Because if you say it's derived, you have to answer this question. Derived from what? What root letters? And in that view we get a sense of what some of the scholars have said is the meaning of the name Allah. So, among those scholars who said that it is derived, they themselves disagreed amongst themselves about what is the actual root. Uh, Some of them say that the name Allah is derived from the verbal noun ta'alluh. Ta'alluh. You can hear that, can't you? Allah with the ha, then ta'alluh. So ta'alluh is interesting because in the Arabic language, you have about 60 or so words in Arabic that describe different levels of love. 60 words. Ibn Qayyim mentions in his Rawat al-Muhibbin all of these Arabic words for love and the different aspects of love in those words. 
And towards the end, he gets to this word, ta'alluh. And he says that this is actually the highest degree of love. Because it is the love that is expressed as ta'abud or worship. Because that's the highest expression of love. A person loves someone or something to the point that they worship that thing. That would be the highest degree of love. That level of love should only be for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they say it comes from ta'alluh. And they do cite some jahili poetry that uses that word ta'alluh with the meaning of ibadah, of worship. So they would say that the name Allah would come from this, meaning the one, the being who is to be loved to such an extent that it is nothing but pure, unmitigated devotion and worship. The worshipped one, al-ma'bud. This is where they say it would come from. That's one view. And it's, it's quite beautiful when you think about it, even if you disagree that it's derived. Just the fact that these words exist in the Arabic language that give that meaning. It's the, the others who say it's not derived would simply reply that, well, ta'alluh means to take something as a god, as an ilah. And that, is, that could be an expression of the epitome of love. Whether it's deserved or not is another issue. That's another view. Um, then there are some who say that the, the divine name Allah comes from this word uh, al-walhan. This is, le- this is less likely, but it's a view that some have. They say it comes from walhan, from waliha. And waliha or walhan means bewilderment, a word that I think is shared between Arabic and Urdu, hayra. That's the Urdu word, right? Yeah, so hayra, or you guys will say hayrat, right? So hayrat or hayra in Arabic, that's bewilderment. The one who bewilders the minds and the intellects. The one who is without beginning, without end, without likeness, absolute, the divine. Bewildering to think about the absolute. And they would say that the name Allah comes from waliha, and that means to be the one who bewilders the minds. The one whose existence and reality bewilders the minds. Um, then there are others who say that, well, it's actually a lot easier than that, guys. They say that the name Allah is coming from the, the name Al-Ilah. Al-Ilah. And we know this name, Ilah, don't we? Where do we hear it? We say it every single day. La ilaha illallah. So ilah means the deity or the God or the one taken as absolute. The one deemed uh, free of all needs uh, before whom all others stand in need. Al-ma'bud. Right? So they say that the name Allah comes from al-ilah. And eventually the hamza was omitted and the vow of that Hamza was transposed to the lamb causing this idgham and then given this tafkhim for the sake of exaltation. So these are different ways they explain how the word went from al-ilah to Allah. One of the ways they explain it is from kathratul uh, isti'mal. Certain words would be pronounced a certain way, but over time, with frequency of use, uh, there's certain letters start to merge into each other because it becomes easier to say because it's said so frequently. So think about it, which is easier to say. Al-ilah. Just say that five times without stopping. Al-ilah. Al-ilah. You see this? Al-ilah. Whereas if you transpose that Hamza you add this tafkhim, uh, you, you do these things to make it easier on the tongue, it becomes from al-ilah to Allah. Allah. So it's easier. That is a strong view. 
it's a very strong view. And out of the, from those who take the opinion that it's derived, that is probably the strongest opinion. That it comes from the, the name Al-Ilah, the deity, the one who is absolute in worship, in truth. So those are the three main views of those who say that the name, the divine name, is derived. Now, uh, I didn't intend to mention this, but I guess I will because I was... You'll, you'll notice that in the language, we, we try to be careful in how we talk. And instead of saying Allah, I'll often divert to saying the divine name. Because the divine name is worthy of respect, is worthy of reverence and honor. So I would not use the name Allah in a certain context. Instead, I would use the phrase the divine name, Lafbul Jalala, instead. So in grammar, you wouldn't say that, you know, in a sentence that contains the divine name, you would not say Allah is. X, Y, Z in the grammatical form. He, he, you wouldn't say the divine name. Uh, uh, accusative, mansub, majroor, marfur. You wouldn't say this. You would say lafdul jalala. The divine name in this grammatical structure is in that state. It's just a matter of respect. So we would say the divine name instead of saying Allah in those cases. This is what our teachers uh, emphasize. So we talked about whether it's derived or not derived. Uh, Imam al-Ghazali says it's not derived. Uh, others say it is. That debate isn't really that important to us. But what it shows us is at least some of the opinions about where the word comes from if it is derived. So the name Allah or in English, God, which we'll talk about quite soon. What exactly do we mean when we say that name? Right? And this goes back to the basics of Aqidah. Right? If you were to, if you were asked, well, what do you mean when you say God? Or the name Allah? We would say that Allah, or God, is that existent that being who has intrinsic existence, whose existence is necessary, wajibul wujud, and who is also without beginning, and without end, and without uh, resemblance to anything. He's unique, he's one, he's without partner in his essence, his attributes, his actions, he is unlike any temporal beings. There's no comparison whatsoever. He's absolutely self-sufficient, independent, without needs, without wants, uh, without, being, without uh, needing something else to complete him. That's what we mean. Istighna. Al-ghina al-mutlaq. He is also all-powerful, whose power relates to all possible things. He is... Willing, he has irada, whose will specifies every possible thing. He is the all-knowing, the living, the all-seeing, the all-hearing. And he is described with the eternal attribute of kalam, of speech, some of which is revealed in the sacred scriptures. So when we say the name Allah, or God for that matter, this is what we mean. That being who has these attributes. Anything or anyone that doesn't have all of these, by definition, cannot be God. So, if you look at, and this is the basics of Aqidah, this is Aqidah 101, this is Module 1 Fard Ain, we're just reviewing it again. That's what we mean. Now, it's really helpful when learning this to compare these things compare these attributes of God to the attributes of everything else. So if you look at human beings, or anything else for that matter, that's existent, that's a possible existent, 
anything with the opposites of these qualities cannot be God. So humans, as an example, they have a possible existence. We don't have to exist. We all have a beginning. We all have an end. We have parts. We have appendages and organs. We're composed of various pieces and parts. We resemble others in creation. We are needy. We're dependent. We're not all-powerful. We're incapable. We have a very limited will. We have finite, limited knowledge that is preceded by ignorance. And whatever knowledge we do have, we, ha we gain it through a process of learning. That means there was ignorance before it. Likewise, we succumb to death and unconsciousness. We, we sleep. People fall into a coma or they pass out. Whereas Allah Ta'ala, Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayyul qayyum la ta'khuduhu sinatun wa la naum. We have limited sight. We have limited hearing. They're not absolute. And we have limited speech based on the limitations of our knowledge, which is preceded by ignorance. So everything in existence uh, does not have those qualities of God. Right? You hear, but that hearing is bestowed, and it's limited, and it's subject to error. You see, but it's bestowed, it's limited, it's subjected to error. So this is the theological way we would explain uh, what we mean when we say Allah, the divine name, or God for that matter. So this brings us to something that, uh, to my knowledge, hasn't been addressed by any book or even lecture that I know of that speaks on the, the meanings of the divine names. Uh, and that is the meaning of the word God and whether or not it matches or can be used as a translation for the name Allah, right? So this is a little bit of history, and I hope you get something out of this. Uh, if you go back to Jahiliyyah, the time of the pre-Islamic uh, Arabs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revered and understood to be the creator of the heavens and the earth and the Lord of everything. And in distinction to the cults of the lesser pagan gods that they established for themselves, in Jahiliyyah, the worship of Allah was never uh, associated with an idol in the sense that they never had an idol that they made, fashioned by their own hands and said, this is Allah. That is, you don't find that. You find statues of Allat, Wal-Uzza, Wal-Manat, and all these different idols, the pantheon of the 360-odd idols that were around the Kaaba. But you don't have an idol that they said, this is Allah. They understood that. They knew that. Now, if you look at the name Allah, the divine name, you do find a similarity between that divine name in Arabic and other uh, languages and they're the words that they use for the supreme being, for God. So it is said that, etymologically, the name Allah comes from the same root as the biblical words Elohim. Of course, this is saying that it's derived. But even if you say it's not derived, each language has its way of pronouncing the same name, just slightly different from each other. So you have the biblical name Elohim. That's in the Bible. You have Ha Elohim. You have Ha Eloh. You hear that? El Ilah. Ha Elohim. Allah Elohim. You see the similarities? Or you hear it? So all of these words in Biblical Hebrew mean God. Right? And this is the name that was used by the Biblical prophets when they would invoke the name Allah. When you look at Aramaic, in Syriac, you find 
that the name they have for the Supreme Being is Allaha or Alaha. I'm not getting the pronunciation as perfectly as a native speaker would, but that's how it's spelled and that's how it's basically pronounced. You have Allaha used by Yahya alayhi salam, John the Baptist, as well as Prophet Isa ibn Maryam alayhi salam. So Elohim is said to come from Eloh, which Ilah, means Ilah, God. And Allaha is the emphatic form of Allah, which is Aramaic and Syriac for God. So in, in Arabic you have Ilah, and in these languages you have Allah. So there's these similarities. Uh, Elohim is also very close. So what do you find in these slight modifications? These are different languages, although they're related. They come from similar roots. These slight modifications just reflect different pronunciations. Uh, and they all conform to certain patterns of these morphological shifts that occur in each tongue, each language. And we can say that those variations between Elohim or Allaha or Al-Ilah in Arabic are very similar to the variations that exist in Latin, Spanish, and Italian words for God. How, what do you call God in Latin? Who knows? It's on the slide. Dios. And in Spanish, Dios. Dios, Dios, and Dio in Italian. Those different, those are, are those different beings? They're not. They're just each language's variant pronunciation of the same word, which is the word for the supreme being, God. The same thing exists between English and German. So in English, of course, you have God with a D, and in German you have Gott with double T. But they both come, they're both the same word. It's just pronounced slightly different. So Elohim, Allaha, Allah are all, we call them cognate sister words that come from the same proto-Semitic root, which is the name for the absolute God Almighty, the Supreme Being, whom we call Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that addresses at least the Hebrew, that addresses the Latin, Spanish, and the Italian, it addresses the German, and it addresses the English somewhat. But of course, what language do we speak here? We speak English. So we're going to narrow in a little bit on the English and look at this. Now maybe you're wondering, why do we talk about this? The reason why we do this is because uh, for a few decades, you, 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 you would find certain people in society pushing this idea that Muslims do not actually worship God. They'll say, no, Allah is not the true God. God is God, and what they worship, that they call Allah, is not even real God. That they, some of them even say, that's actually a, an Arabian moon God. You heard that? Some of them say this. And I don't know how they say that while reading the Qur'an when Allah says فَلَا تَسْجُدُوا لِلشَّمْسِ وَلَا لِلْقَمَرِ وَاسْجُدُوا لِلَّهِ Do not prostrate to the sun or to the moon, but prostrate to Allah who created them. It doesn't make any sense. So because of that, I want to address this issue a little bit and also look at whether we should use the name God in uh, our daily discourse or when talking with other people, specifically non-Muslims? Or should we just always insist on using the name Allah? I think this is important. So the name God in English is a very unique word and it has a theological meaning attached to it. It is very ancient and it extends all the way into the Neolithic period. And it is said that it is derived from the Proto-Indo-European root word, gud, and I'm not pronouncing that 100%, but it means to invoke or to supplicate. 
This is what it said. Now, because you have this Proto-Indo-European root, it means that you have this larger language family. So you have Sanskrit, you have Persian, you have modern-day Urdu. I mean, Urdu wasn't always a thing, was it? Prior to Urdu, what was it? I mean, what is Hindi even? Yeah, so it's just the Sanskrit version of Urdu, basically. I don't know the intricacies, but it seems to me like it's pretty much the same language. Would that be a correct assumption? Well, there's, there's Arabic loan words, there's Persian, Turkic words, yeah. So you have uh, like Sanskrit, Persian, and Urdu in many or most of the European languages. English, too, belongs to the Indo-European family. So, you know, it's an Aryan language, right? And the word God in Proto-European, Indo-European, it goes back to Guto, which corresponds to the Sanskrit word Uta. I don't know how that's pronounced, but that's the root. And it means to invoke or to call upon. That's the linguistic origin. Yeah. Yes. You said, what you say? Yeah, so there's there's Khuda, Khuda Hafiz. I, I did look into this a little bit, and I'm not sure if they match perfectly, because I think the name Khuda has a meaning of owner or king as well. So languages like this, the, the genealogy, genealogy of languages, the loom of language is very complex, and I'm no expert. But the point I'm making is that the, the name God in English derives from this proto-Indo-European uh, language with this word that has the meaning of invoked or to call upon or called upon. Al-Mad'u, right? What du'ahu al-ibadah, right? So that's the linguistic origin of the name God. Now, where do we find it in English? What's the most early, the earliest place we find mention of the name God in the English language? Some would say the Bible, that's, or the translation thereof in, in King James English. That's not true. It actually is pre-Christian. Because every single people, every single culture, large civilizations, smaller microcultures, every people have a name for the supreme being. Every single one of them. So the English word for God uh, in the present use, God, is pre-Christian. And the earliest documented mention of the name God is in the ancient poem called Beowulf. Has anyone read that? Or the translation? Because you literally have to translate it into regular English. It's the very ancient English. We wouldn't even understand it if we heard it. So Beowulf is the oldest poem in the English language, and it's also the earliest European epic. And Beowulf, I think they've made a movie out of it, although I wouldn't recommend you see it. I think it's garbage. But you can read modern versions of Beowulf. It's a very beautiful story. It's a story of bravery, of valor, of strength and honor, of sincerity, of a man with strong belief in God, who fights against paganism and fights against injustice. It's a very beautiful story. It's a classic epic in English. So it uses the word God. It, makes, it, it, uh, it criticizes pagan practices of worshiping idols. And this uh, epic poem, Beowulf, speaks about early pre-Christian events in the early 6th century literally a generation or so before the birth of the Prophet That's how old this poem is. And you can look up modern translations or renderings with commentary on this poem. It's very good. Now, what you find in Beowulf, which again is the, the earliest mention of God in the English language, in English literature, it doesn't have any Christian references. But it speaks about Allah's power, God's power, and mentions praise of God and gives thanks to God at every turn. In every turn of event, there's praise of God. 
And it mentions the creation. Uh, it mentions Adam. It mentions Noah. It mentions the flood. So it does mention biblical concepts, things that were in the Scripture. It mentions the day of judgment. It mentions resurrection after death. It mentions heaven and hell. However, it doesn't have any mention of any mosaic or post-mosaic biblical events, nor does it have any mention of Jesus, alayhi salam, or the crucifixion. And it has no mention of anything regarding the Trinity, Trinitarian doctrine. It doesn't mention anything relating to Christianity as such. So you would think that given the, the time this was written, that it would be teeming with Christian references and Christian theology, but it doesn't have any. But it does mention God as being the creator, the absolute. It gives thanks and praise to God. And this is the earliest mention of the name God in English literature in this beautiful poem called Beowulf. So Beowulf is a beautiful poem because it shows you that the word God is disassociated from any uh, heretical or theologically problematic beliefs. The idea that it's intrinsically associated with Christianity, that's false. The word on its own is the word for God in the English language. It has an Indo-European root, but it means the supreme being. So that is the history, in a nutshell. Now, and this brings me to a point about the usage of language. Now, we're talking about the name Allah. If you say the name Allah is uh, derived, then you have those meanings. If you say it's not derived, then it's, it's the name that speaks or points to the divine essence of the Creator. Now, for us as English-speaking Muslims, uh, or Muslims who, you know, you're, you're born speaking another language, but you are born Muslim, it is natural for us as Muslims to have this attachment to the name Allah, as we should, because Arabic is a sacred language, and we use this language liturgically in our salat and in our du'as when we recite the Qur'an. The Qur'an is Arabic, so of course we're going to have a stronger attachment to the name Allah than we would to the name God. However, we have to recognize that you know, living in this society where the mandate should be calling people to God, calling people to Allah, we have to recognize that the name Allah will rarely have the same effect on non-Muslims as it does on us. And if you just repeat the name Allah and give people the impression that it's a different being from God, you're not saying that, but sometimes people take, they get that impression from the way we use the name Allah. This actually becomes something of an impediment to da'wah. So we have to be mindful of it. We shouldn't insist that it always has to be the name Allah. We can use the other beautiful names that there are other languages that describe the Supreme Being. So you can say God if that is going to make people more comfortable or it become, the, the message becomes more relatable and understandable. Now, you know, some people, even though they, they understand this, they know that Allah is the Arabic name for the Supreme Being. They may even know that the name Allah is in the Arabic translation of the Old Testament and New Testament. They may understand that and accept it, but they didn't grow up hearing it. So in, for the sake of uh, breaking down barriers uh, and making the message of Islam more accessible, you might want to consider using the name God as you talk to people about Islam and not insist that it's uh, Allah and not God, as if this is some theological point. Because Allah is the name of the Supreme Being, God is the name of the Supreme Being. Just two different languages, right? Now, where this shows up, and, I, and I'm guilty of this myself, uh, where this shows up is in the Shahada. Right? Someone comes to the masjid, and they want to take the Shahada, 
And what does the person do who administers the shahada? They tell them to say in Arabic the shahada, and then they give the translation and have them repeat the translation. But what do they do? They say, uh, they tell them to raise their finger, and they say, I bear witness, and they say, I bear witness, that there is no God, that there is no God, but Allah. Why couldn't they say, I bear witness, that there is no God, but God, the capital G, God Almighty. Why do they do the switch up in Arabic right then and there? It's, I mean, I do it. Everyone I know does it. It's because we are so attached to the divine name in Arabic, as we should be. But sometimes we don't think about the message, the subtle message that may give to people, right? This might create a barrier for some people. Maybe not the person becoming Muslim, but maybe their family, maybe listeners, non-Muslims who are with them. You're going to have to explain as you give the shahada uh, why Allah actually means God anyway, which sometimes gives the impression that God as a name is inadequate. But you're giving the translation for something that they already said in Arabic using the name Allah. So it's acceptable either way. I'm not saying you have to do that. I myself tend to do that myself, but it's just food for thought. That uh, to be more comfortable using the name God when reaching out to non-Muslims and speaking about uh, our faith, and not to give them the impression uh, that it's somehow a distinct, different being from God. That might be a misconception they already have. You don't want to reify that by insisting on this. You know, that is, that's my position and some others as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have to navigate our da'wah carefully. But the point from all this is that the name God, like any other language that has a name for the Supreme Being, it's a good name. It's a beautiful name. It should be honored. Uh, now at the end, remember I said that for each of the divine names, after we explain them, we're going to look at the three levels of connecting devotionally to the name, cultivating the meaning of that name in our character, and having realization of that name. These three things. Well, when we speak about the divine name Allah, we can't really do that. We can't really do that. That would apply to the other names but not to this name. So, Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq, rahimahullah, he said that it is possible to cultivate within oneself the character of all of the divine names, except this name. Because the other divine names point to attributes. Al-Ghaffar, the forgiving. What quality can you build based on that meaning? Forgiving other people, right? Uh, Ar-Rahim, the merciful. What quality can you build from that meaning? Being merciful. But Allah, what quality can you build to reflect that? There's nothing. There's no... It's only for ta'alluq. It's only for that first level of, of connecting devotionally in worship. There's no inculcating that in your own character. It's just not possible. Uh, he says, all of the divine names go back to this name. So to know it is to know them all. This name, he says, in its written form, indicates the tremendousness of the one named with it. Thatan, wasifatan, wafi'lan. In essence, attributes and actions. So there's nothing to be said for uh, the inculcation of character, that's not happening. Um, however, Imam Ghazali took a slightly divergent view here. And he said, well, there is some kind of nasib. There is some kind of share that a person can have. And the translation sounds horrible. And I don't, I don't mean a bad translation. It's accurate. But when you read it on the surface, it sounds blasphemous, but it's not. He says, man's share in this name should be for him to become God-like. Now that sounds blasphemous. 
but let him explain and you realize it's not blasphemous. The word he uses is ta'alluh. Ta'alluh. He says, by which I mean, here's where he explains it, by which I mean that his heart and his himma, his aspiration, be taken up with Allah Most High, that he not look towards anything other than him, nor pay attention to what is not him, that he neither implore nor fear anyone but him. That's what he means. And you, you, your independence is with Allah. Your sufficiency is with Allah. Everything is with your Lord. That's what he means. That you take all of your himma towards the absolute. Right? Uh, that is what Islam is at the end of the day. Islam is the only possible relationship that the relative, and we're all relative, can have with the absolute. What possible relationship can the relative, the finite, the limited, have with the absolute and the unlimited? What possible? You can't negotiate a relationship. The only relationship is Islam, submission to the divine. That's it. That's what he's saying here. He says, how can it be otherwise? For it's already been understood from his name that he is the truly actual existent and that everything other than him is ephemeral, perishing, and worthless except in relation to him. The servant sees himself first of all as the first of the perishing and worthless, as did the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he said, the truest statement uttered by the Arabs was the saying of Labid. Labid is a pre-Islamic Jahidi poet. And in that poem he says, He says, indeed, everything other than Allah is batil. Batil here doesn't mean false. It means not, just nothing. Zilch. That's it. So that is the way a person would connect, as according to Imam Ghazali, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And uh, yeah, that's that's really it for the speaking about the divine name Allah. And as I said in the beginning, of all of the divine names, this is the the hardest one to talk about. Because you're not talking about an attribute, you're talking about the divine essence, right? So, you know, it is said by the ulama that Adamul idrak idrak, your inability to comprehend the divine, that is comprehension. Your inability to grasp the ungraspable is the essence of grasping the reality of the matter. Hayrat, right? That's what it is. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. So inshallah next week will be the we'll, we have a class before I travel where inshallah we cover the two names Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. So we'll be covering a lot of pairs in some of these classes. That will be the first set of pairs that we cover. Bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. So I saw your hand up so you have the first question. Well, it comes from the Semitic language family. That's why you hear those similarities between the, the Hebrew, the, the Aramaic, and the Syriac. So these, this language family, they all have essentially the same name for the Supreme Being. It just sounds a little different because of the natural variations in pronunciation across time. The, the name Allah is mentioned in pre-Islamic poetry that's still preserved today. We find the name Allah inscribed in pre-Islamic uh, carvings on rocks in different regions of Arabia. Uh, there are far and few in between. Uh, most of the engravings that, we, that have been discovered are actually post-Islamic in the early period. Uh, the earliest from that period or from the era of the Sahaba in different parts of uh, Arabia and Yemen. But that, that name is 
It was always recognized. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. There's no god but the one true god. Yeah, or something like that. That's good. I think that's a wise way of doing it. Uh, you know, because some people say, oh, well, there's a difference because in Arabic, Allah, the divine name, is Allah, but in English, God can be up with an uppercase G, with a lowercase G. It can be God with the, uh, in the plural form. It could be masculine and feminine God versus goddess. But guess what, guys? Do that in Arabic, too. It would be kufr to do that, purposely. And when you study Arabic, when you study morphology, uh, that's mentioned. They don't give you the names. But the teachers will tell you, yeah, linguistically that is possible, but we're not going to just say what those, you know, we're not going to pluralize the name Allah or put it in the dual form or the tasghir, diminutive form, but it could be done. Right? So I like that idea of just adding that for clarity. Yeah, that's good. That actually, you could, that, that actually opens up. Now, the shahada is valid because they said it in Arabic. And if you give that translation or another translation, it's all valid, inshallah. But so I wouldn't fault anyone for using that. But theologically, there's some contention about that. Because if you say that uh, La ilaha illallah, uh, some say La ilaha illallah means La ma'bud illallah or La ma'buda bihaqqin illallah. So you know, they have to add all these other things to it. There's no one worthy of worship. Uh, other than Allah, right? Uh, it, so theologically, there's some issues there because it goes back to the meaning of ilah, right? The meaning of ilah has that meaning, but other meanings too. Yeah. But uh, that's for another topic, another day. Yes. Uh, I take the view that it's not derived, but it's. I respect the view that says it is, and they they have their points, and the fact that it's shared with the other languages in that Semitic family doesn't mean it's necessarily derived. That wouldn't be a proof. Uh, it just means they say it the same way, right? Uh, the view that it's not derived is owing to the uniqueness of the name. Uh, but the the word ilah, for instance, that's derived. You know that word ilah, or the word el ilah, right? So it's not a huge controversy that people should fight over. It's it's a legitimate view, right? But I just incline to that view that it's not derived. That there's a uniqueness to it, and it's not coming from something else. Yeah. Inshallah next week. All right.